0: It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B, as in boy, I-N, as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 177, Rommel Retreats, The End of Operation Crusader. As the second battle for City Rezegh shaped up, Rommel had an idea of how to defeat the hard by enemy forces at City Rezegh. He would go after Freiburg's New Zealand Division, who were separated from their armor. However, as had become the custom... His orders to General Cruvel came too late in the night to implement. No matter, Cruvel had, again, anticipated his military master and issued his own orders. Yes, his plans were bold. They would see the end of Allied resistance in the area and close the door to Tobruk once again, if all worked out. Basically, where Rommel sought to overwhelm and destroy, Cruvel would attempt encirclement. Rommel's was more direct-thinking, but would lose more of his men. Crevel's way would develop more slowly, which brought its own risks, but would save hundreds of their soldiers' lives. Had Rommel's plan been used, he would have attacked the 6th New Zealand Brigade on the city of Ridge and the 4th New Zealand Brigade at Belhamed on the ridge just north of Rizegh from the north. This full-out attack would have come from the former Africa Division, recently renamed the 90th Light Division, and if successful, would have driven the New Zealanders away from the airfield, and to Brook, to then be hit by the Ariete Division further south. And who's to say if it would have worked, but as it was, the day would be governed by Crevel. Rommel's subordinate called for the ninetieth Light Division to only apply pressure from the north, not to fully attack, but to make sure the New Zealanders at Belhamed and just south on City Rizek Ridge didn't go anywhere, certainly not any closer to Tobruk. This would be the beginning of Cruvel's circle. Meanwhile, the twenty first Panzer Division, led by General Von Ravenstein, would strike from the east in the flat area in between Belhamed and Sidi Rezeg. As for point 175, where the eastern end of the New Zealand line ended on Sidi Rezeg Ridge, that would be overrun by the Ariete Division, coming from the south. Directly to the south of the Rezeg Ridge was General Bokker, who had control of that ridge, plus point 178 just south of it. He and his guns and infantry would hold the line, which again would become a part of Cruvel's circle. That just leaves the western part of the trap, near Ed Duda, just below the Tobruk garrison and due west of the New Zealanders at Belhamed. And that was where Cruvel was going to attack directly, with Newman-Silkow's 15th Panzer Division. At the moment, a part of the Tobruk garrison under the command of General Ronald Scobie, held Ed Duna, which is why that had to fall back into German hands. However, the 15th Panzer, when the attack was to begin, was to the east of the entire Allied position around City Rezeg airfield. It would have to travel just south of the airfield, itself below the City Rezeg ridge, currently being held by the 6th New Zealand Brigade. The good news was that, for a part of their journey, the 15th Panzer would be covered by Bacher's guns. On November 29th, Cruvel's attack got underway rather badly. As the 21st Panzer Division moved west to engage the New Zealanders' rear guards on their most eastern end of the two ridges, von Ravenstein's staff car got lost and went a little too far west. He was soon surrounded by the lead New Zealander units, which quickly figured out what a prize they now held. The 21st, which had suffered more than the 15th Panzer Division, lost heart at losing their commander. Still, the 15th Panzer got underway that morning of November 29th and traversed the tank run just above Bacher's position, who covered him. Yet the New Zealander 6th still took shots at the moving panzers from the north. Though it took up the first part of the day, the 15th was able to surprise Scobie's men at Duda. The men of Tobruk gave ground, but then steeled themselves. Their backpedaling came to a halt. Still, the Germans had a toehold, and hoped to use that to launch another attack the next day. But Scobie and his men weren't about to wait. That night of the twenty-ninth, they brought forward their heavy infantry tanks, the Matildas. These vehicles couldn't go like the Panzers, but they were hard as hell to knock out, as the Germans found out. That night, the Germans lost what they had gained earlier that day. No, it would be the Italians of the Ariete Division that would give Cruvel his best results. Coming at Point One Seven Five on the eastern edge of the Sidi Ridge, the southern line of the two main ridges, itself just above the airfield, the New Zealanders of the 6th Brigade believed, mostly because they wanted to believe, that the approaching tanks and men to their south were of the 1st South African Brigade, led by General Pinar. By the time they realized the truth, the Italians were already behind their main lines. The defenders' position was now untenable. The truth was that the first South African, still shaken up by the last few days' fighting, were advancing much slower than realized, being escorted by the 4th and 22nd Tank Brigades. The New Zealanders backed off, knowing it would be useless to fight a series of close-quarter and uncoordinated battles. Early the next day, November 30th, Rommel came to Crevel's headquarters. The latter did not have much in the way of good news. The 15th Panzer, just outside of Eduna, had their confidence shaken, as their long trip and successful surprise attack had come to naught. The now headless 21st Panzer Division was trying to hold its ground just east of the two ridges, but it was costing them, literally, The men and equipment were being taken out by the New Zealanders' guns on the ridge closest to them. At least the command problem could be solved. The 21st was put under Bokker, though he was still on the ridge to the south of the airfield. As for the one good spot, the taking of 175 by the Ariete Division, even that was starting to crumble as the British-led forces launched counterattack after counterattack from the south. It was just a matter of time before that location changed hands again. But all this meant nothing to Rommel. He believed Crevel was assessing the situation with the view that the glass was half empty. The Desert Fox never had that problem. No, their situation was not crumbling. Where they were would be used as launching points to finally finish off the New Zealanders, and thus Ritchie's command. Rommel ordered the fifteenth Panzer, though shaken, to take the City Roseg tomb, located on the ridge just above the airfield, to its northwest. To help them every German gun within range of that tomb would fire until the moment the Panzers arrived, thus shaking the New Zealanders' defenses. Once the tomb fell, the City Rosegg Ridge would be then unattainable for the British. But what's more, the Germans would then move north and take Belhamed on the ridge further north of the airfield. And as Belhamed was on the same ridge as Duda, it would begin the process of once again closing off Dubruc. For whatever reason, the British believed the German position was deteriorating, and the next few days would see the end of their organized resistance. The why of this is still not clear. Suffice it to say, the Allies were setting their sights on reacting to whatever the Axis did, which is hardly ever the recipe for success. Late November 29th, early into the 30th, the 15th Panzer came at the western edge of the City Rezeg Ridge, currently being held by the 6th New Zealand Brigade. As they moved closer, Bacher's guns fired from the south shelling the area. The New Zealanders had figured out what was coming and gave a good account of themselves, handing the 15th Panzer many casualties and damaged tanks. But the shelling from the south made the difference. The New Zealanders couldn't simultaneously fight off the panzers and duck whenever a shell came down. The six New Zealanders slowly backed off of the heights. During November 30th, the same thing played out at Belhamed to the north. The 4th New Zealanders fought tenaciously, but the German panzers and artillery, again, were too much. The link between the 8th British Army and the men of Tobruk was cut. To be sure, the British reacted to this with their own armor. The skittish 1st South African Brigade came at Point One Seven Five that afternoon of the 30th, with orders to take it back. Yet, as their heart was not in it, the Italians held them back. As for the 4th Armored Brigade, after babysitting the South Africans to this point, it broke off and went after the airfield again, as it was the center point of the area. The 15th Panzer had left forces there to protect their rear while their comrades ventured north, but the 4th Armored overwhelmed them, which took the pressure off the defeated and retreating 6th New Zealand Brigade. They were in the process of moving to the more northern ridge, but to the east of Belhamed, by some four miles, at Zafran. As far as the 4th New Zealand pushed off the northern ridge, those that were not captured or killed also made their way due east to Sivran. So the Allies were beaten and pushed off the heights, But they had wisely come together as to not be finished off, as scattered units were wont to do. By the early afternoon of November 30th, Freiburg realized his division was in trouble. Being pushed off the two ridges was bad enough. They had lost men, while inflicting respectable casualties themselves. But when the night came, it was decided the New Zealanders would head southeast, into the desert, to the relative far southeast of the airfield, for safety. Rommel had won the day and the battlefield. But again, it had been a costly victory. He had the momentum, he just needed more men. Those he would not get, but his opponent, Ritchie, would. With the New Zealanders pushed back, and Godwin Austin's 13th Corps trapped with Scobie's outer salient within the wider German circle. Rommel would ready for the morrow to deal with Norrie's 30th Corps. As for Norrie's corps, it too was forced back into the desert, to once again regroup, to deal with their wounded, their broken machines, to assess their current situation, which would, hopefully, help them plan how best to reopen to Brooke. For all of Rommel's costly tactical success, he was starting to worry about the frontier to the east, knowing he left too few men behind. He had to finish off this current struggle and get back to the frontier wire. Outnumbered he might be, but the general knew the priceless value of keeping the enemy not only in reaction mode, but on the run. His dream of reaching Egypt had not faded contacting his superiors in Rome, but not addressing them as such. He reported of his latest victory, but that it would mean little if the reinforcements of men and materiel were not speeded up. For clearly the British had started a battle of attrition to make up for their lack of technical skill, in his opinion. Being honest, Rommel admitted to having a 142 fewer tanks, 25 fewer armored cars, 42 fewer anti-tank guns, and 4,000 fewer men. The total cost of his success thus far. But he had inflicted impressive damage to the enemy as well. His next goal, he told Rome, who were still remembering that his was only to have been a red herring for the British to focus on, was to reopen the Via Balbia, get back to the frontier, reinforce the units he had left more east, and set the board back to the pre-Crusader days. As for reinforcements, those would certainly come, but for Ritchie, not Rommel. Auchinleck flew back to 8th Army Headquarters on December 1st to help with any major decisions, but also to put a stickabout in making sure fresh units and supplies reached the combat area. First off, the 4th Indian Division and the 5th New Zealand Brigade were relieved from their frontier duty of working with General Nori by the 2nd South African Division, as he, Nori, was just east of Bir el Gubi, itself far enough south of the airfield as to not concern Rommel for now. The 2nd South Africans were en route there straight from having newly arrived from East Africa. Also on their way to Nori were parts of the 1st Armored Division, either having just landed from Britain or coming from Syria. When all were gathered, Ritchie would, wisely or no, only the results would show, restart Operation Crusader. General Nori, so reinforced, would thrust to the northwest from Bir el-Gubi, while Godwin Austin would break out of the extended Tobruk perimeter to the southwest. As both forces would head for El Aden, about five miles, or eight kilometers, due west of Ed Duna, actually a little to the southwest of Tobruk itself, not only would the Germans be cut off from retreating, again, they weren't trying to retreat, but to actually head in the opposite direction, but the ring around Scobie's men would truly be shattered. Yet all this planning and preparation took time for both sides. Ritchie hoped to be ready to move on December 3rd, yet that was an enthusiastic date, which did not factor in reality. Still, he would be ready to move soon. Problem was, Rommel was ready to move before then, so commenced his attack to help his forces to the east, closer to the frontier wire. As had happened before, both sides were attempting to reach far into their adversary's backyard as a means of winning closer battles. On December 2nd, Rommel sent two columns, unsupported by tanks, one along the Via Balbia, which led to Bardia, the other along the coast and the Trig Campuzo, which led to the fort of that same name. As for those German units on the more northern road, the Balbia, the 5th New Zealand Brigade had been warned of their coming. Instead of preparing a hardy defense to repulse the attackers, as things had gotten personal by this time, an ambush was devised, which was pulled off to perfection. The German column was almost completely wiped out before its remains could surrender. In regards to the more southern column, they were merely deflected, though completely by the 4th Indian Division. Word of these debacles took time to get back to Rommel and Cruvel. So the next day, December 3rd, the 21st Panzer moved west from the tomb and attacked Ed Duda, which led to nothing of significance. Meanwhile, the 15th Panzer, at this point, stronger than the 21st, was combined with the Ariete Division and sent east towards the frontier, to look for any of Bach's men and the men of the Savona division still held up at the Halfaya Pass. Rommel couldn't resist the grand gesture. That could have potentially paid huge dividends. Yet by the end of December 3rd, both Rommel and Ritchie had a hard rethink. Ritchie called on Norrie and told him not to advance from Bir el Gubi. Why? Because one did not go traipsing off to the northwest, only to find the Wally Rommel operating to his rear. It had happened before. In fact, as we have seen, some of Rommel's men were already on their way to the east. As for when the advance could restart, never was looking like the answer. To balance this out, Rommel contacted Crevel during his mad dash east and told him to return. The British force at Bir el gubi was becoming large enough to make a run themselves north and cut every one of Rommel's communications with his forces closer to the frontier. He had certainly done that enough times to his adversaries to know well its effects. But now came the moment that Cunningham and London had been hoping for. They just didn't know it. Putting aside his more aggressive tendencies, Rommel after assessing his situation honestly, knew he didn't have the men and resources to both hold back Scobie and his men at Tobruk while taking on the British Eighth Army. There was only one thing for it. Tobruk would have to be undivested, which would give him enough men to finally defeat the Commonwealth forces before him and push on to Egypt. Tobruk would just have to look after itself or be dealt with later once the Battle of Sidi Rezeg had stabilized. In the Axis favor. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination. With their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So... For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. For now, this was the plan. Africa Corps would go south and attack Nori's ever-growing force at Bir el This would give him enough time to peel away his troops that made up the eastern wall around Tobruk. As for that part of the circle that made up the western and southern walls, they would stay in place and be the origin of a new line that would run south from there through El Abdin to Bir Hakim, some 25 miles or 40 kilometers into the desert. Then he would wait for reinforcements and, once again, come tearing out of the west, to make for Egypt. As for his men along the frontier, they would just have to hold out as best they could. But even this advance backward was muddled up. Leaving the Ariete Division at City Rezeg to cover the removing of the units to the east of Tobruk, the Africa Corps started south on the afternoon of december the fifth. By late that evening, Cruvel came upon the British at Beer-el-Gubi, yet it was too late to launch an attack. But hoping to outsmart the British, during the night, Cruvel moved many of his men to the west of the British position, hoping to hit them the next day on a less defended side. But that's not how it played out. The 21st and 15th Panzer Divisions could not, embarrassingly so, get out of each other's way. Hence, they were not separated until late the next day, December the 6th. It didn't help that the RAF, finally having an immobile target to strike at, bombed the Panzer Divisions throughout the day. But it only got worse for Rommel. While moving with his men on December the 6th, 15th Panzer Divisional Commander Newman Silcow was wounded, seriously so, by an artillery shell. He would die three days later. Yet, finally, the Battle of Bir el-Gubi was launched, then fizzled out. The British had, by this time, a respectable force of guns and tanks, with the RAF overhead. The Germans, along with the Ariete Division, bashed themselves against the Commonwealth forces, but nothing came of it. Bir el-Gubi stayed under British control. While this battle to the south played itself out, Rommel was involved in a much bigger war, one that he would lose, which would cost him the battle for City Rezegh. Colonel Montezilomo, emissary of the Italian Supreme Command, now at Rommel's headquarters, didn't mince words. He came right out and told Rommel that until Kesselring's Second German Air Force could reestablish control over the central Mediterranean, no more supplies would be sent over. Rommel knew at that point, Crevel would have to work a miracle, and soon. Otherwise, the Africa Corps, with its Italian comrades, would have to pull back to Gazala, some 28 miles or 45 kilometers due west of Tobruk. And the only reason Gazala was more than halfway built up to be a strong redoubt was because General von Paulus had ordered it so. On December 7th, 1941, a date which would live in infamy, was no friend to the Axis in North Africa either. On that date, Rommel ventured to Cruvel's headquarters and asked what was next. Cruvel answered there was nothing more to do, so the order to withdraw was given. Late that evening, Italian General Bastico, in overall command of Axis forces in North Africa, though Rommel largely ignored this title, asked to see the Desert Fox. Rommel made some half-hearted excuse, so Bastico came to his headquarters the next day. The result was only more fighting, this time between the Axis allies. Rommel accused the Italian soldiers under him of being inefficient. Bastico came screaming back at his supposed subordinate that he had squandered vast resources. Yet Rommel ended the screaming match by saying he was going to take his men to Tripoli and intern himself and his in Tunisia. Still, some concrete decisions had been made. The new Gazala line on the eastern side of the Cyrenaican bulge was to hold out as long as possible, to ensure the Axis had time to take away everything within Cyrenaica worth taking. On December 8th, Crevel had the 21st and 15th Panzer pull back from Bir el Gubi. Everyone behind them did the same thing. The British had hoped to exploit this, hoped to create a second Betafam that had seen Commonwealth forces swing out and capture so many retreating Italian troops. But it was not to be. Crevel did an outstanding job of keeping the British-led forces at bay. On December 12th, the Axis were behind their new line along Gazala. Moreover, they held up the British there until the 17th. After that, the Axis, thanks to Crevel, was able to retreat in a pace that suited them. And try as he might, Godwin Austin could not get in between any two pieces of the retreating Axis front to cut out a part of the ever-fading enemy units. Godwin Austin's 13th Corps came upon the Gonzala Line on December 17th. The next day, he advanced enough west to reach the new access line that started at Derna, some 50 miles or 80 kilometers northwest from Gonzala. This line ran to the south to Makili. The Germans were always just ahead of him. Both forces were now deep inside Cyrenaica proper. The Commonwealth forces tried to swing south again through the desert to get in behind the Germans and Italians. But now the Luftwaffe was doing a splendid job of frustrating that attempt. Three days later, on December 21st, Godwin-Austin and 13th Corps were along the new access line that ran from Barche, about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers west of Derna, south to Emsis. Again, the retreating Axis forces were achingly close to the British units. Four days later, on Christmas Day, the Allies pushed their way into Benghazi itself, in the northwestern corner of the Cyrenaican bulge. Yet the British were the only ones to receive a gift that Christmas of '41. On that day, two out of the four transport ships had landed with panzers for Rommel and Cruvel. The two that made the journey carried 23 and 22 panzers, respectively. The other two ships carrying the same number of panzers were now at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Cruvel wasted no time in bringing those new panzers up to the front. Attacking the Thirteenth Corps on December 28th, and then again on the 30th, Rommel's subordinate was not trying to restart the offensive. The Axis were headed for El Aguila, at the bottom of the Gulf of Sirte, or some 150 miles or 240 kilometers southwest from Benghazi. They just needed some breathing space. And the Germans had not lost their flair for defensive retreats. Their professionalism shone, and the 22nd Armor Brigade lost 37 tanks in their first clash, with another 23 gone in their second. The 22nd Brigade had started out. With 90 tanks. The last part of Rommel's retreat started New Year's Day of 1942. This was the Allies' last chance to cripple the Axis. But a sandstorm rose on January 6th, which effectively covered the Axis' last few steps. By the time the storm was over, the Germans and Italians had aligned their great guns and tanks, inviting destruction to any who chose to come at them. But back at the frontier, the situation ended better for Ritchie and the British 8th Army. One by one, General Norrie was able to focus on the Axis holdouts, with no worry of looking over his shoulder, and brought them all to a point of surrender. The 2nd South African Division was instrumental in this siege warfare. Bardia gave up on January 2nd. The holdouts at Halfaya Major Bach and the Sevillea Division raised the white flag on January 17th. Operation Crusader, which had morphed out of all recognition, was now over. It was a British victory for the 8th Army, but equally so for those naval and air units that choked Rommel's supplies. And it was a costly victory. The British lost due to death, wounded or missing, 15% 15% of their forces, some 17,700 men. For the Germans, the percentage was higher, but not the actual number, 22.5%, some 14,600 of their men. Yet it was the Italians who bled the most, with 43% or 23,700 of their men now out of the war. Besides the victory, the British had learned much. Their men, Up and down the line, went from brave fools to cynical professionals. Moreover, the inadequate British guns and airplanes were also brought to light. If Tripoli was to be taken next, then the latest of everything had to be brought over on a massive scale. Though the Axis would be outnumbered when Operation Acrobat got underway, the Germans were still respected. Yet there would be no great push, no acrobat. On the night that Cruvel had begun to withdraw from Bir el-Gubi, the Japanese Navy had attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor and would soon run amok in southwest Asia. Any supplies meant for 8th Army would go instead to the far east in an attempt to stem the Japanese tide. Yet the British had learned much during Crusader and would go on to adapt their tactics and strategy. But what they still lacked was the right leader, someone on the ground who had the confidence and the competence to take the entirety of the army of the Nile onto his shoulders and show it the way. The Commonwealth forces in North Africa were still in want of a big man, someone who believed he had what it took to take on Rommel and defeat him. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 178, The Pillars of Lenin, Stalin and Trotsky. Last time, no one was doing well in Russia during the summer of 1917. The Lenin faction of the Bolshevik Party was almost leaderless, except for Stalin and Sverdlov. Trotsky was in jail. Lenin was hiding in a Finnish barn. But so too was the Russian army suffering. It had moved ahead with Kerensky's offensive, but they paid for it after their initial success. Now the Germans were coming on strong. The front was crumbling, which leaves Kerensky. Having gone from war secretary to prime minister in a relative short time, normally only allowed during a war or some other crisis, the new leader was losing allies fast. Some of this was from the war Another part was simply the lack of improvement in the people's daily lives. Still, he was at the head of the government, and hoping to remain so for as long as possible. Yet, as it was a time of crisis in revolutionary Russia, any situation could change at any moment. And that's what happened. Lenin's latest writings, which Stalin published in The Worker's Path, told the people that the ruling classes were counter-revolutionary. That the bankers were not going to push for economic reforms. That landowners were not going to share their lands. The generals were not going to bring peace. After all, their job was to wage war. War that would get more peasants and more soldiers killed. In essence, the bourgeoisie was weak. They did not have the power or the inclination to give the masses what they yearned for. No, if there was to be an improvement for the downtrodden, if the revolution was not to be lost, they themselves, with the Leninists in charge, of course, would have to seize power. And whether it was this persuasive message, or that the idea's time had come, the Mensheviks and the non-Leninist Bolsheviks agreed. For the first time, the left was unified. To give this unification even more strength, Kerensky's battle of political wills with Kornilov, the commander-in-chief, caused the former to see the Leninists in a less threatening light. As Kerensky ordered Kornilov and many of his followers to come before him to be arrested, and amazingly, most of them did, the Bolsheviks, previously locked up, were let out, most notably Trotsky, on September 3rd. With their stock riding high, the Bolsheviks now dominated the Petrograd Soviet as well as the one in Moscow. And as such, Trotsky went from prisoner to the head of the Petrograd Soviet. Thus, Lenin finally had one of his own in a prominent position. But to be the leader of an organization while your potential opponents have all the weapons, for example the Russian army, is nothing to get excited about. But that was about to change the shipment of 40,000 guns that Kerensky had ordered when his antagonism was at its height with Kornilov finally came to Petrograd. Yet the ones given said guns were the factory workers, a very different destination than Kerensky had envisioned. These now armed men, future Red Guards, would, in time, take the side of the Bolsheviks. Stalin wrote of this time in September that though Kornilov was gone, there might yet be another like him. As such, the Bolsheviks needed the guns, which they had just got, but also they needed to break with the provisional government. That all power needed to go to the Petrograd Soviet. Not because Trotsky was in charge now, but because whoever held power would dictate the type of revolution there would be, who would be looked after in the revolution. And as the Bolsheviks only cared about the landless peasants, they were the ones who would benefit if the Bolsheviks came to power. But even this wasn't enough for Lenin, still in Finland. He sent letters demanding a coup, now, before someone or another group came along and gave the people the action they wanted, not just declarations. After all, the stock market had imploded Many were pillaging, groups within provinces were attacking other groups, using the lawlessness that prevailed the country to strike back in revenge. Even the soldiers now broke away and gave into banditry. But the surest sign that anarchy had come back to Russia were the lines, the long lines for bread. There was even talk of disbanding large sections of the Russian army, as it could not be fed. So Kerensky supposedly for the gesture of it, but there was probably more to it, moved into the Winter Palace, the Tsar's former home. It was a more secure location, to be sure, but Kerensky started sleeping in the Tsar's bed and working at his desk. The political right, disgusted with Kerensky for this, and the barely hanging provisional government, put out stories that their new leader was a Jew and was in the pockets of the Germans. During all this, Lenin's letter was still screaming for action. Clearly, Kerensky had lost the respect of most Russians. Now was the time to remove him and take power. His letters exclaimed, pointing out the obvious, We have thousands of armed workers and soldiers in Petrograd who can seize at once the Winter Palace, the General Staff Building, the Telephone Exchange, and all the largest printing establishments. Kerensky will be compelled to surrender. In early October, Stalin published this letter of Lenin's, then added on to keep the people worked up and apprehensive. The counter-revolution is mobilizing. Prepare to repulse it. Yet, that wasn't the case. More besides, the central committee of the Bolshevik party wasn't even ready to bloody their hands. For the now apoplectic Lenin, this was too much. The time was now. Why didn't his comrades, the men who supposedly followed him, see this. So, risking all, the older leader shaved his beard, donned a wig and fake spectacles, and returned to Petrograd sometime between October 3rd and the 10th. And so disguised, Lenin attended a meeting of the lackluster Central Committee. It was its first since July. Yet even this meeting demonstrated the fear or anxiety the Central members felt, as only 12 of the 21 showed up. Zverlov, on Lenin's side, reported the supposed popular support for a coup. But still, some of the members held back. Lenin, who couldn't take it anymore, started talking, and then talked some more. His diatribe lasted for hours. And, like earlier in the year, this fiery slight of a man browbeat his opponents. By the end, Lenin got ten of the twelve members to come to his side. The takeover was approved, yet no date was given. What did this mean? Was there to be an overthrow of the shaky, almost non-existent provisional government, or not? The truth was, anything other than a yes was a no. On October 18th, Zinoviev and Kemenev, the two no-votes, wrote in a smaller paper that they were against a coup. Which pretty much informed those who read the article that a coup was being discussed, and perhaps even more. Lenin was beside himself with anger. Yes, the provisional government was unpopular and ineffective, still, it was the authority of the land. If it was to be attacked, it was best, if the attack came, as a surprise. Lenin wanted the two blabbermouths out of the party, but Stalin let them off. Once they published an apology, in his newspaper. He, Stalin, then considered the matter closed. Yet the coup was out there. It could not be taken back. Again, Lenin was left unsatisfied. He wanted blood. He wanted Russia. But for now, he focused on the body, or bodies, of those who had betrayed him. Meeting with Trotsky on October 18th, Lenin instructed him to deal with Kemenev and with Stalin if possible. Two days later, at another Central Committee meeting, Trotsky chastised Stalin for his peacemaking efforts, and pushed through a vote to accept Kimenev's offered resignation. By now, the Bolsheviks, having been forced out of the Taride Palace, Catherine the Great's summer townhouse, now resided in the Smolny Institute, a finishing school for young ladies of the nobility on the eastern edge of the capital. The Petrograd Soviet was headquartered there as well, which made Lenin's next move that much easier. Forcing a vote at the Smolny Institute, Lenin got his way and the Soviet's Central Executive Committee approved the establishment of a defensive military revolutionary committee, the MRC. This new committee was approved once again due to Lenin's rhetoric and Trotsky's popularity in mid-October. The rest of the Soviet and the Bolsheviks at large were told that the MRC was needed, in case the Germans made it to the capital, or Kerensky came after them again. In reality, its first adversary would be the Provisional Government. The Second All-Russia Congress of Soviets was set for October 20th, and Trotsky believed he had found the very thing to end the suspense of when the Provisional Government should be toppled. He would do it himself during the Congress, and at the attending, hand the keys to Russia over to the delegates. As in, Russia is now in your hands. You can't go back from what I have done. Yet many of the delegates made it clear they would not be in Petrograd by the 20th, so it got pushed back to October 25th. This only worked to the good as far as Trotsky was concerned. It gave him more time to plan his coup. Trotsky got word to the soldiers and sailors, the Soviet government will annihilate the misery of the trenches. It will give the land and it will heal the internal disorder. The Soviet government will give away everything in the country to the poor and to the troops in the trenches. If you bourgeois have two fur coats, give one to a soldier. Have you got a pair of boots? Stay at home. A worker needs them. Also, with the extra days given to him, Trotsky had many, thousands of soldiers and civilians pledged themselves to his cause, to help the poor. And still, with all the support, the Bolshevik delegates hesitated. Stalin told them, we either start the uprising or we consolidate our forces. Another way of saying, let's wait and see. But Kerensky took that choice out of their hands. The leader of Russia, living and working from the Winter Palace, issued orders for the arrest of the top Bolshevik leaders. But more specifically, on October 24th, the day before the Congress was to start, Kerensky had military cadets and citizens' militia smash Stalin's presses. Stalin, having what he had wanted, that first blood was drawn, calmly sent runners to Smolny to inform them that something was finally happening. Trotsky, also excited that the dam of immobility was finally broke, sent MRC forces to save the presses and get them running again. Now that there was something other than talking or voting happening, Trotsky kept the momentum going. As word spread of troop movements throughout the capital, Red Guards were sent to occupy the rail stations, the bridges, and the telegraph. Kerensky retaliated by having the Smolny's phone lines cut. Trotsky himself retaliated by seizing the telegraph exchange. The Smolny's lines were once again running, and it was the Winter Palace's lines that were cut. But Kerensky wasn't done. He had the power cut to the Smolny Institute, so the Red Guards went to the electricity generation station and seized that. As far as the people were concerned. The leader of the provisional government was disturbing the life of the city. It was the Red Guards putting things back to rights. By midnight of October 24th, the Red Guards controlled most of the important sectors and services of the capital. Kerensky, though, still in the fight, fired the commander of the Petrograd military district, Colonel Georgi Polkolnikov, but the colonel ignored his dismissal. Instead, he informed the headquarters of the general staff that the government was putting up no resistance to the Red Guards, which seemed true. But how many men still loyal did Kerensky have at the Winter Palace? That was the $64,000 question. If that and he could be taken, the fight was over. The revolution would be won by the Bolsheviks. Yet, the question was mute. Whether it was 10,000 or 15,000, the men inside made it clear they would not fight. Instead, they broke into the Tsar's wine cellars and got drunk. Defending Kerensky and the Winter Palace was now some 140 women and a few hundred military cadets. As for the latter, their hearts weren't in it. With them were a few Cossacks 40 war invalids and a commander with no legs, also a victim of the Great War. As the Congress commenced the next day, October 25th, the question before the body was, should they take power? There was no one to stop them but themselves. Greetings everyone from Central Virginia. So I know it's been a while, so I just wanted to take an opportunity for this maybe last episode of the year to thank all the latest members and everyone else who's uh, helped out the show. So as far as saying hi and welcome aboard to the latest members, I would like to say hi to Dean N, Cameron A, Hermia A from Alberta, Canada, Renee F from Ohio, Zachary B from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Andre H. from Masselheim, Germany. Mikhail B. Scott K. from Bridgewater, New Jersey. Timo I. Joe W. from Swansea, UK. David M. from Bexley, New South Wales, Australia. Benjamin H. from Indianapolis, Indiana. James M. from Thibodeau, Louisiana. Kija or Chija B. from Sierra Madre, California. Dan S. from Valby, Denmark, Sean W. from El Paso, Texas, Brandon O. from Claremont, Washington, Eric S. from Manlius, New York, Liam A. from Railway State, Queensland, Australia, Jason B. from North Lanarkshire, UK, Robert F. from Ulshut, Sweden, I'm sure I butchered that, sorry Robert, and Hope H. from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. As for those of you who have purchased CDs, probably as Christmas gifts for those who haven't mastered the iPod, there's Sean M., Christopher G. from Middlesex, UK, Christopher H. from Birmingham, UK, and it is Brian G. who has decided to buy a Churchill mug for someone. So thank you very much, Brian. As for the donations, I would like to thank... Brett G., Jennifer B. from Inglewood, Colorado, Jeff S. from Hot Springs National Park, Arkansas. So there's a little bit of time left, but I still have got mugs and CDs or the coffee, what do you call them, the travel mugs, if anybody wants those. So just send me an email to gmail.com. I'll let you know what I have, and I'll give you a price quote if you want. And the next thing that you're about to hear has nothing to do with history, but I was going through an old computer, and I found a recording of my cute little daughter, Kiki, who decided she would help me with my podcast. So I just thought I'd end the year with something for my family who have supported me for the last six and a half years trying to tell a five-year story. Take care, everyone.
1: Hi, I want to... Um, well, my father's good and I love his podcast. So, um... I thought that maybe... Um... Uh... I would, um... I would do lots of helping to Father. So I think I would help him with his podcast sometimes. And one time I was saying thank you with, with Father and me and Mommy and Sophie. We all said thank you and thank you. And we said thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you. And, thank you and we like. And we said, so yeah. And I hope you get this message. This is not a message. I'm pretending. (laughs) So ( 하면서胖) ( ak). I will now tell a story. Once upon a time, the end. There, I'm done. Oh wait one thing. Period. Okay, that is a silly thing. Goodbye. (laughs)